and welcome to another edition of the In Context podcast. Today I'm with a friend of mine, Natalie Williams. How are you doing, Natalie? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Great. So, Natalie, explain a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are and, and what you're currently doing. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm Natalie. I live in Hastings, which is on the southeast coast. It's a deprived coastal town and got a lot more in common with some of the northern towns, actually. But um, grew up here. A national newspaper once called it Hell on Sea. Uh, I quite like it. I've ended up moving back here. Um, I grew up in a really working class family and in different periods was in like relative poverty and got saved at 15, became a Christian then and kind of started going to church because I liked the boy, but God had other plans. And yeah, it's been a real journey since then, but that, that was 30 years ago today uh, that I became a Christian. Wow. And Happy yeah, birthday. I know, amazing. <laughs> and um, yeah, today I am chief executive of a Christian charity called Jubilee Plus, which helps churches across the UK to engage predominantly with people in poverty, but also because of my own background, we talk a fair bit about class as well as poverty. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've recently been studying a lot about Spurgeon. I interviewed an author uh, just last week who has written a book called uh, Spurgeon and the Poor, and again talking about how much uh, benevolence that was shown by Spurgeon, his, his work with the poor, that we often hear a lot about his preaching and his pastoring, but not much about his work with the poor. And when I, when I asked the author, Alex, uh, why do you think Spurgeon had such an impact uh, back in his day, he he said one of the reasons would have been because uh, social care was missing from the government. It was uh, often left to the church to provide social care. And I said it probably won't be long before we're back into a similar situation that Spurgeon was in. Uh, and I know this was, probably wasn't one of the questions I said I was going to ask you, but it's just interesting with thinking about Jubilee Plus and uh, the cost of, of living crisis. Uh, would, would you agree, do you think we are heading back uh, to the bad old days of where uh, the government is abdicating responsibility and the church is having to take more for the poor? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly difficult times we're in, isn't it? And I think that, for me, untangling that, what is a government's responsibility and actually what is the church's responsibility and the call of God on us? And it's a bit muddy, isn't it, really? Because obviously government does have responsibility and you know, um, the hallmark of a flourishing society is that the poorest aren't left behind um, and that everyone has opportunities and that's government responsibility. But also, you know, we, we want people to know that actually you really need help is the church. It's the people who follow Jesus who are going to help you out because we want to point people to him. So I think um, there's obviously really good things about when the church has to engage, but obviously there's the part of it that's awful, which is the government, the church has to engage because maybe the government isn't doing um, or isn't able to do, depending on your views, um, what government should be doing in, in kind of any flourishing society. So I think it's a it's a bit of a mix. But for me, I, I want people to know that the Christian I know or the church nearby is where I go to, to get help. Um, I just wish they didn't have to think it for some of the reasons that they have to think it, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. 
So it, it's it's interesting that we're we're now in the twenty first century. We we're supposed to have come on as a society so much. Uh, we look at the opportunities that uh, my parents had coming from a a working class background. The, my mum was able to go to uni and, and train as a as a nurse later on in life once we'd left school. Uh, but now it seems to have taken a, a, a backward step. What is the need, first of all, for an organisation like Jubilee Plus? And, and, and why did you start it? Yeah, I think the reason the reason there's a need for us is that together with a lot of other Christian charities, I think we're there's a bit of a prophetic role of reminding the church that caring for the most vulnerable is just a part of following Jesus. Mm. Uh, that often in this country, what we see is that social action and evangelism get separated. Yeah. So there's like a pendulum swing where we do social action um, and that's great. But then at some point we just take Jesus out of it and we stop talking about him. Sometimes in our day and age because of funding, and it's harder to get funding if we talk openly about our faith and if we want people to meet Jesus. Um, and then what tends to happen is when we stop talking about Jesus, then uh, there comes a wave of Christians who get very upset about that and say, well, we shouldn't, that's all just do gooding because you're not even talking about Jesus. So we need to bring the pendulum back to evangelism. And then all we do is talk about Jesus. And we don't want to get distracted with that peripheral stuff of, you know, helping people in need. But I think what we see in the Gospels and in the New Testament, in the early church, is that actually we're supposed to hold both things together. We're supposed to offer people hope for their immediate crisis and hope for their eternal crisis, not just one or the other. So for me, I think Jubilee Plus, we we feel a real prophetic sense of reminding Christians and churches in the UK, we caring for those in need is, is just part of the gospel. It's not an optional extra. It's not a department of church life that's for some Christians and not for others. It's something we're all, any follower of Jesus, just as we're all called to worship and we're all called to pray and we're all called to read our Bible and we're all called to be part of Christian community, we are likewise all called to care about mercy and justice, which Jesus calls the weightier matters um, in Matthew 23. So, yeah, for me, I think some churches, are, particularly at the moment, it seems very focused on evangelism and not so much on social action. I think way more are really focused on kind of mercy ministries and social action and maybe Jesus is starting to get dropped a bit. So that's what we're kind of doing at the moment. The reason we were set up, though, was um, after the global financial crash in 2008, uh, a lot of the churches that um, in my kind of family of churches, New Frontiers, we were doing quite a lot in terms of caring about poverty overseas, but not so much in our local communities. And obviously at that point we'd gone into a recession like much of the world had. Uh, we were in that era of austerity. Um, that's what the government was kind of saying. We needed a, an era of austerity. Um, and so at that point, there was suddenly a lot more need around us. Or maybe it's just that we were suddenly aware of a lot more need. I don't know. But that, so we, we were set up basically to help churches in the UK not to stop doing anything about overseas poverty. We need to do that too but to kind of just strengthen and add to that with what are you doing in your local community with your literal neighbours as well as your, your overseas neighbours. So probably for our first 10 years or so, we would have defined success as are we helping churches set up projects like food banks, like debt centres, night shelters, these sorts of things. I think more and more now the question we're asking ourselves is 
are we helping churches get this in the DNA of the church? Is it is it something that you come to a church and you realise mercy and justice are on the heart of people? Or is it just actually there's a real kind of core few activists, but the rest of the church are just grateful they're doing it so they don't have to? Um, and, yeah, that's that's kind of what we do. So we, we put out resources for churches, like a kids' curriculum and a discipleship course, a social action course, and uh, all sorts of other things. Um, but mostly we're in relationship with a lot of churches, trying to strengthen what they're doing, uh, trying to serve as best we can. Uh, and we work with loads of other charities as well, like CAP, you know, Christians Against Poverty and, and others. Um, we don't by any stretch think we've got a monopoly on this stuff. We we do more when we work together. So we try and work in partnership wherever we can. Awesome. So, sounds fantastic. And again, it's a shame, I think, that so many people will uh, either give their time to overseas mission at the neglect of local mission or vice versa. And again, it's a bit like preaching the gospel and showing mercy, isn't it? These things are to be held together rather than individually. Why do you think we have such a, a, a one-focused outlook with church? And do you have any advice through Jubilee Plus to how to develop a more holistic approach to uh, holding things like evangelism and mercy together, local and, and foreign mission together? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of it for me is just asking ourselves those questions. And actually, I think, I know, I see this in myself all the time. I would just pick the easy option every time because it's because it's easy i mean yeah obviously so for me it's asking ourselves as christians and as church communities and church families why why like are we still talking about jesus and if not why not do we think that hope for someone's present needs um and and sorting out someone's present and immediate needs is more important than eternal needs or vice versa and actually, if so, it's looking at the scriptures, isn't it, and saying, well, what, if, what do we see Jesus doing? Because actually Jesus met people's immediate needs. You see it time and time and time again. You know, I don't need to tell you this, you know that. But in the Gospels we see, what's the presenting need? Is it the people are hungry? Okay, so we'll better do a miracle and get some food then. Is it that the people are sick? Then we better heal. Is it that the people are afraid because the storm's raging? Okay, then I'll calm the... Uh, the water I'll calm the waves I'll calm the wind is it that actually I'm at a wedding and there's going to be deep shame because they've run out of wine okay I'll turn some water into wine we see Jesus time and time again what he does is he meets those immediate needs and actually I think kind of controversially he doesn't always meet people's deepest needs he doesn't always do that but of course he is pointing people to the kingdom of God all the time uh, with his words and with his deeds and I think so it's coming back and it's looking at Jesus again but it is also saying actually what I feel Jesus might be asking of me is harder it's hard work but actually because Jesus wants me to do it I'm going to give myself to it I'm going to commit myself to it I'm going to do the more difficult thing so I talked to a church leader recently who is talking about trying to reorientate the whole church towards um, an estate that is literally on their doorstep and He's like, you've got to have, it's going to be years. It's going to be years of refocusing, reshifting, and we might lose some people because a lot of us, again, I would include myself, we're quite addicted to our own comfort. Yeah. We do, and, and even that, so why do we choose between 
committing ourselves to local poverty or maybe overseas poverty, usually because we feel like we've got to make a choice because I need to keep what I've got yeah. for me. And then I've got this little bit that is available for other people. And, and, and that's, I think that's natural. I think most of us are like that. But what we see in the early churches that they sold what they had so that they could give more away to those in need. And that's massively countercultural to where we're at right now, isn't it? So I think we're, we're much more likely to make a choice. Of, I can only afford A or B when often, actually, I probably could afford A and B, but I won't because then I won't be able to do C, which I quite like doing and I'm quite committed to for my, in my own life. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm constantly feeling challenged about my own generosity, my own – so many things that others in the world would consider luxuries I think are essential. Um, yeah. And so, again, it's just challenging ourselves. What have I got? What have I got that's off limits to God? Yeah. What have I got that I proclaim loudly mine over and actually is God calling me to release it so that I can be a blessing to people on my doorstep and people thousands of miles away and commit myself to evangelism and, you know, do mercy ministries as well. Um, yeah. I mean, God does call some of us to, to some specific stuff too, though, obviously. You know, I mean, I, I'm... I'm, I'm pushing hard on that in that let's do it all. But actually, we all know that we are, God calls us to special areas of service. And I, I think that sometimes, though, we let that get us off the hook of other things when God actually would like us still to be focusing on some of those other things as well, even if it's not in the same way or the same to the same level. Yeah, definitely a, a big temptation for me as well within the ministry that I was involved in and I love doing the stuff that I was gifted at doing and when I say gifted sometimes I mean felt easier <laughs> it wasn't as hard as doing the other things so I hear a lot of people from our background say they're gifted in evangelism but not many saying they're gifted at cleaning the toilets so yeah that was something that I had to learn uh, and unfortunately a church that I was in helped me with that by allowing me to clean the toilets and, and and setting out the chairs and things like that and yeah I think so many times we we have a life luxury and busyness that we try and fit in doing yeah. one of these things rather than having a way of life and uh, that our life fits into our, our Christian life yeah it's it's a yeah it's a challenge for us all isn't it yeah and I think it's interesting as well because sometimes other Christians can be an obstacle to us. On a, that I do think it's interesting you talked about cleaning toilets and stuff. I, I remember going to speak at a church, uh, probably it was last year, and um, they had a lunch afterwards with some of their social action leaders they, so that I could stay and do Q&A you know, and get to know them a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of lunch, I just sort of jumped in the kitchen, joined in the washing up, and they were horrified because they were like, oh, you can't do the washing up. And I was like, I can yeah. you know and and they they but they were like but you're i guess you i guess but i was like but isn't it a kind of an all hands on deck sort of thing and and i think it's interesting because it you know obviously they're just like not wanting me as their guest to to do that but i think actually there's there's something of i don't know just almost like a hierarchy that's not healthy or a i don't know if hierarchy is there's a, there's an honoring that's good but then there's also a 
a kind of, you know, James talks about the special honour for the special person and actually it's favouritism and it's mm. kind of putting someone above other people, which is not okay. And so I think actually, you know, I, I've been joking even today with um, one of someone I work with about the fact that um, I hate calling myself chief executive yeah. Just because it sounds so like I don't know, I just I'm not that comfortable with the title. It is my job title, but I, it's just it kind of sounds so grandiose, doesn't it? And so like I don't know, um, yeah, it's 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 important, isn't it, to try and be keeping ourselves humble and not trying to I don't know elevate ourselves. Even even when God might have lifted us up, we still need to be the same people who will clean the toilets and who will do the washing up and who don't shy away from the hard work in those practical and physical ways too mm. yeah to, to be honest sometimes i find life easier if i'm just having to clean the toilets <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you can get away and being anonymous for a while uh yeah but again with, within your role it is quite diverse it is serving it's it's been on the ground with the, the people uh off the estate where you live it's 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 being with uh people across the board, culturally and, and, and class. And uh, you're also uh, an author as well. You've written several books. Uh, one of them that I've been reading is called Invisible Divides. You wrote that with a friend of yours called Paul Brown. And I, I wonder, can you explain uh, why you wrote it, first of all, and uh, why you felt that what you'd written was something that the church needed to hear? Yeah, so Paul and I um, are both from really working class backgrounds and have both kind of found ourselves, first of all, coming to know Jesus and then um, coming into kind of church ministry and, you know, Christian ministry and stuff like that. And, and you know, I just think when you're from a working class background and you get saved into churches that in our case were majority middle class churches, there's so many cultural barriers. I just remember having a massive culture shock when I got saved. And there was the culture shock of the fact that I didn't know anything about Jesus or the Bible or worship or church or small group life. I mean, you know, things like the idea of standing in someone's front room in a circle and all singing uh, in each other's faces is just so odd. Right? So all of that was a massive cultural shock on the spiritual side. But then added to that, I just... I there was just so much behavior I didn't understand and didn't get and was so different to anything I'd seen before. Um, the one I always talk about is that before I became a Christian, I'd never seen food served the way that um, nice middle-class Christians serve their food to guests, you know, which is like one dish for meat, one dish for vegetables, uh, one dish for potatoes and stuff. And then you like, you're, you're expected to serve yourself. And so for me, I was a bit like, Oh, like, they're not even going to put food on my plate for me. But then also, like, how do you know how much you're supposed to take? Like, I remember being in one place trying to work out how many potatoes there were and how many people there were. And I just can't do maths that quickly because I was trying to think, like, what, yeah, what quantity am I supposed to take so that they don't think I don't want to eat their food, but also I don't look greedy or like I've taken too much and then there's not enough left for someone else. But then also I genuinely was like, are you supposed to take this food in a particular order? Um, like I, I don't know the answer today. I still don't know the answer to that question. Um, but so for me, there was just these massive culture shocks of just you know, food's just one example, but just things were done so differently. And so Paul and I just 
we found it quite hard. Both of us, separate stories, separate journeys. Uh, obviously, he's a guy, I'm a woman. Um, he uh, was already um, married and had a baby. I'm single. Um, I got saved at 15. I think he was in his 20s. Um, he's a bit older than me. So, yeah, we, we've got different stories, but actually there was a lot in common of just how hard it was yeah. to feel like you fitted in in church. And I th- the reason we wrote the book is because we didn't just want to point out all these things that make it hard, although we have done that in the book. But we also wanted to, I guess what our starting place was, if you don't understand the ways in which you're different to people around you, you won't see the barriers you're putting in, yeah. in place of people feeling that they fit in church. And the reason the book's called Invisible Divides is because they're invisible. You know, I mean, they're, they're mostly values that are internal. So the food one obviously is external, but it's, it's based on a value that's internal. And I was just aware I was so offended and alienated and often felt excluded in church settings. And I've seen that happen um, and also, it's funny, the longer you've been in church, you start doing that to other people as well. So, um, And you catch yourself saying something that you would have never said 10 years earlier. And, and so for us, we, we wanted to write a book, hopefully to help, to help both middle-class people and working-class people see, oh, this is why sometimes there's some tension. Or, oh, this is why that person didn't stay in church. Or... This is why that person got really offended when I've got no clue what I actually said or, or did. And most of all, it was because we, Paul and I, firmly believe that the church, each individual church family is supposed to be diverse, mm. that we're not supposed to have like kind of a working class church over here and a middle class church over here. Never the two should talk to each other. Um, or even like, you know, a Chinese church here and a Ukrainian church here and a British church here. I, I believe that what we're heading towards, well, we know it in Revelation, it says every tribe, every tongue, every people um, are going to be worshipping around the throne. And the fact is every people group are going to be there and our differences aren't going to disappear. In fact, our diversity is going to be preserved for all eternity. And I think the church is supposed to be a foretaste of that. Now, you know, Jesus said, They'll know you're my disciples by how you love each other. Well, if we're similar in pretty much most areas of life, we've lived the same sort of life experience, we, then it's going to be easy to love each other. Mm. If, if the world will know we're Jesus' disciples by how we love each other, that love must be something different. It must be something special. It must be something that actually only resurrection power can achieve. And so for me, that's we think churches are supposed to be where actually people should be astonished that we talk to each other because we should hate each other, Uh, that people should be astonished that we can do deep, meaningful friendship with each other because we should have nothing whatsoever in common. And and I believe that's what the church is supposed to look like as a foretaste of what we're going to experience for all eternity when Jesus comes back. So we wrote the book, hopefully, as a... uh, We hope it helps people. I think particularly majority middle-class churches, we hope it helps to uh, be more inclusive, be more welcoming, in the way that I think most of us want to be and just don't know that sometimes we're not or sometimes we're doing things that are going to put people off. Yeah. No, I think it I think it's a very a very helpful book. Thank you. Uh, I was encouraged for two reasons. First first of all, uh, that we were hearing from a from a female perspective, other than just from a men's, but also again, uh, 
it's showing that this is kind of cross-denominationally where I suppose most people and churches that I work with would be like independent uh, Baptists uh, or like through the FIEC, but then we, we're seeing New Frontiers churches and then I'm speaking with people in Anglican churches and the problem is universal throughout the church, not just uh, in a particular denomination. Somebody asked me, is it because you're in like the conservative evangelical theological tribe that you faced this and would you have had a better time in the Pentecostal church? And I was like, no, because like the statistics within your book show that the majority of people within the church, regardless of which uh, denomination uh, is, is middle class. And we will yeah. find these uh, invisible divides, regardless of what church we go to. Yeah. And uh, another reason why I found it refreshing was uh, because often when I've said things, I've been accused of having a chip on my shoulder or being angry or uh, aggressive. And often I've been dismissed and told that, uh, there is no class in the church, it's just one class, and that's the Christian class. I was often facing, facing pushback, so it's nice to, to have somebody else saying, although it's not nice to hear that people are, are struggling with the same things, it's nice to know that I wasn't making these things up, that I didn't have a, a chip on my shoulder, and that there's other people out there agree with me. And I just wondered, when you have written the book or when you've shared about these divides in the past, have you faced similar pushback? And why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So when we were writing the book, um, quite a few people said to us that your class isn't an issue anymore, not just even in the church, but just class isn't an issue in society. And um, why are you making it into such a big deal? But I can hand on heart tell you every single person who said that is middle class. And what we were hearing from people who are working class was, um, particularly actually after the book came out, so many people have got in touch and kind of said exactly what you just said, which is, oh, I can kind of breathe a sigh of relief that it's not just me. I think the difficulty is that sometimes we do have a chip on our shoulder. I think anyone can have a chip on their shoulder about anything, can't they? And sometimes we do. And sometimes when you've been hurt or something's been really hard work, it's we can present ourselves in a way that, um, I'm not saying you have, but I'm just saying we can present ourselves in a way that gets people's backs up because it feels confrontational or it feels like we're accusing people of not doing something or doing something wrong. And so then everyone gets a bit defensive. And I think one of the things we've tried to do with the book is not vilify anyone, not kind of accuse anyone, but we've tried to assume the best, which is that we all want to be in churches with diversity across all different types of diversity, not just class, but but would include include class. We've assumed people care if their working class neighbours come to know Jesus or not and are part of their church. We've we've tried to go at it with, do you know what? We we think we all want the same thing ultimately. We just talk about it in different ways. We use different language, and we've got these kind of unspoken rules of what we think Christianity should look like. And many of us, I think we probably all do this. We think our way of doing things is right. Otherwise, we'd change it. Yeah. So I think my way of doing hospitality is right, but actually it's very different to the middle-class way of doing hospitality. And then my middle-class friends think their way of doing hospitality is right. And so the book was just kind of a, let's try and let's try and challenge ourselves, all of us, let's try and challenge ourselves. Okay, my way of doing things might be good, but it's not necessarily right. It might just be one way. So what would it look like if I opened my hands a little bit and, and let go and, and released my grip on my way of doing things and 
And so we've tried to present it in a way that hopefully doesn't come across as a, having a chip on our shoulder. But I think there's always going to be people who, it's uncomfortable stuff. Mm. And most of us like to be comfortable. We don't like too much challenge. Or we like just enough challenge, <laughs> a lot of us, don't we? Yeah. And and so, yeah, I've definitely experienced what you're saying. I've experienced people saying, I mean, while I was writing the book, I had, you know, one person in particular who was just kept saying to me during the whole process of writing the book, you're not working class. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. That, and I went, you know, this is a friend of mine. We talked openly about it. And I was like, what, first of all, what makes you think you get to decide what class I am? Like, how does, why are you saying that? And they're like, well, you went to university. And I was like, yeah. That is true. I'd be the first person in my family to go. But actually, I went after I became a Christian, which I wouldn't, have, I would never have even occurred to me if I hadn't become a Christian. I partly went because everyone around me was going. And then I suddenly thought, well, this is the thing you do to fit in here. So I better do it. Um, and it, genuinely, that's one of the reasons I, I went. But also, that's an, again, it's an external thing it's not an internal thing and my values still today are very much working class I see it when I get into conversations with people about money about holidays about things like hospitality about attitudes to possessions and status and all sorts of things where community authority education all kinds of things even just yesterday I was having a conversation with someone about um, private education and and you know paying 15 grand a year for your seven-year-old to go to school and just kind of thinking I have a reaction to it and that reaction may be wrong it may be right but it's definitely a reaction from my working class roots which feel not just like they're deeply buried underground they still feel pretty prevalent in my life so yeah I think there's going to be tensions when cultures come together but Denying there's even a difference is a big part of the problem. And, and, and again, I think what you've said there, again, about the internal and external uh, reasons for how we do things or for how we think is, is valid. Again, so just getting back to me having a chip on the shoulder, I, I did have a chip on the shoulder, uh, I, I through, a lot of it through uh, frustration, uh, righteous anger, but then also through sin and unrighteous anger and I, and I didn't always handle things well uh, I, I, I've tried to repent of that after I spoke at a, at a conference about class somebody came up to me and said look I agree with what you're saying I understand there's a problem uh, I want to know what to do to help I don't want to just come and get told off all the time so that helped me think oh you know what we have got some friends here they're not our enemies they're, our, they're the middle class are our brothers and sisters in Christ how can I uh, change the truth that I'm saying so it's more palatable so we can work together rather than uh, fall out and create enemies. So that's something that I've been trying to do. But again, because of the class, sometimes I think just the way we speak or react or some people call us blunt, I say I'm honest. <laughs> sometimes that internal upbringing, our class structures that we've grown up with, mean that we we behave different in polite society. And although we feel we're being polite, there's that tension then. So can you share a little bit about how uh, maybe you've battled with assimilation, whether you have been able to retain the good from your, your, your social class, and how do you know what you need to let go of and, and why? Maybe that's a lot of 
<laughs> it's a big question. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll try and answer that. And um, if I miss any of it, and you want to come back, then please, you know, please do. But yeah, I think on the subject of assimilation. So I would say I spent the first twenty years of my Christian life trying to become like everyone around me, without realizing that's what I was doing. Yeah. So for me, I, you know, I kind of. It's only really in the last ten years that I felt God really start to speak to me about why have you dropped so much of your past and I, I suddenly it's like you know my eyes were suddenly open to see that I was trying to become like everyone else because I thought that's what good Christians look like mm. and I thought if you're a good Christian you're you know devoted follower of Jesus it it looks like the people around me not realizing that actually yes yeah, some of it some of it does but not all of it does because there are different ways I like, I think. Whether I invite you round for dinner at, you know, kind of Christian o'clock um, on a Wednesday evening and expect you to bring a bottle of wine or whether I let you just drop into my house any time you want, like, actually both are fine. Yeah. Not, one's not sinful, one's not righteous. They're both good ways of showing hospitality. But I thought that the way everyone around me did it was the way I had to do it. Mm. And it really kind of came home to me, actually, when a friend of mine turned up at my flat unexpectedly. And she, I, I'm in a flat, so she ran the intercom to the building and I was, wasn't expecting anyone. And it was an evening, so it's unusual. And so I, I answered the intercom and was like, who is it? Really friendly. Uh, you know, who is it? And she, she said, and I, you know, and was like, oh, you know, I was passing. I was like, oh. And I just sort of paused and then she went, are you going to let me in? So I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Cool. So I buzzed her in. And then when she got to my actual front door, I was like, how come you're here? <laughs> Again, this is one of my close friends, really super friendly on my part, because I just was so taken aback. And she was like, what is wrong with you? Let me in. And so I did, and we hung out, and it was nice. But it just suddenly I realized, when I was a kid, we walked in and out of each other's homes all the time. Like, you didn't ring a buzzer. You just walked in. And I know times have changed, and maybe it's that also, you know, safety-wise and things things might be different now. But the, the, the idea of you can drop in, that you don't have to have an appointment. You don't have to have a meeting. It doesn't have to be in the diary. You just come around when you feel like it. And if we happen to be eating, you get food. Um, You know, I think it's one of the things I've noticed. I I still notice now so much about my working class friends. There's always extra food. Um, Like, or portions will be made smaller so that there can be extra food. You know, it will never be the case of, oh, we've only got enough for three of us so you can't stay. It'll just be, you know, it'll be divided up and whatever. And yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just funny, isn't it? It's just these these kind of cultural differences. So I've now spent ten years trying to shed what some of what I'd taken on that wasn't becoming like Jesus. It was just becoming like everyone around me. It was assimilating, mm. and but then trying to work out which bits do I need to keep and which bits do I need to take off. It's just that's an interesting journey. And I think to be honest, again, it's it's not. If it was as simple as I could give you a list, we'd all love that, wouldn't we? We could then tick off, really, yeah, great. But actually, a lot of time, it's just, it's about heart motives. Yeah. And that's something that's between us and God, isn't it? And it's coming before God and trying to be open with, where have I got an attitude problem, God? Um, where am I the problem rather than the other person? Um, where am I just trying to keep up? I've noticed, I don't do this anymore, but I noticed a few years ago when I was around like certain politicians, which I have to be for my line of work, I, I would develop a very different accent. I would, I've got my posh voice. Uh, it's not that posh, but <laughs> I noticed how I would change the way I was speaking. And I just thought, I'd, I'd sort of come away afterwards and be laughing at myself, thinking, you sound like an idiot. Like, what is wrong with you? And 
what's wrong with the way you speak? That's the way you speak. To speak is fine. And but it's it's a fear of being judged and stuff as well, isn't it? And um so I I think I've been doing some hard work over the last ten years and repenting of stuff I've taken on that it's it's not that the stuff is sinful, but it's that I've been more concerned about fitting in with Christians than I have about am I becoming like Jesus? Yeah. And that's the bit to kind of say, God, I'm sorry. And, and I want to be like Jesus. And that means I need to be generous, but what that generosity looks like might be different. I need to be welcoming, but what that hospitality looks like might be different. I need to submit to authority, but I need to balance that with actually a healthy kind of um, desire for justice that actually pushes back against authority, but pushes back when there's injustice, not just because I don't like authority figures, uh, you know, and it's kind of, Learning that stuff is the lifelong journey of sanctification, isn't it? But I think the starting point is, am I open to going, are my ways your ways, Jesus? Because uh, probably the answer oftentimes is no, isn't it? So, um, and then what, what do you want to shape? Where do you want to start? What are we going to work on? And what does it look like to actually even be okay with not being like the majority mm-hmm. and, and being secure enough that I'm Christ's beloved? So actually, if I don't look like you, I don't sound like you, I don't act like you in, in some of these ways. It's all right. Jesus loves me. He chose me. He wanted you to like, love me and get along with me as well. So, you know, let's work it out. Yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah, it's been, been a, a challenge and continues to be a challenge for me, especially raising uh, two girls up who uh, like being frustrated. My daughter was playing roller hockey once. And she went to score a goal. And uh, as she did, she tackled somebody and they fell on the floor. And instead of scoring the goal, she stopped and picked the girl up off the floor. And the pastor side of me was like, oh, what an amazing little girl. But the work class side of me was like, you should have scored the goal and picked her up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to be honest, I don't know if that's class, but my competitiveness is with you on on that. Yeah, score the goal, then pick her up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might not, that might just be sin issues and not class issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, it's I've had that said to me a few times. You you you're not working class. Uh, you 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 you're studying now. You you you're at uni. You've got uh, daughters. You're on your own house. You've got daughters who go to uni. You've uh, you're homeschool. So a lot of people would say that I'm, I'm middle class. But I, I'd written something a couple of years ago saying that a lot of classes like what you said internal and mental so although where i've lived and the roles i've had uh have been quite transitional my my, the way i think has been quite static and even as a christian and even through being sanctified there's a lot of ingrained uh beliefs that that i've got from my class which uh some are good and 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 some are bad and uh yeah i think that challenge for me too check with my heart what what can I hold on to because it's good and what shall I, what shall I leave go because it's sinful has, has been really tough. And I think it's easier to assimilate because you want to be accepted, but it's, it's, it's harder to deal with. <laughs> Instead of dealing with the heart issues, uh, that, that's harder to deal with the heart issues to think, right, what is sinful and... and uh, why do I need to change? Because even if you assimilate, you still bring those heart issues into the church with you, don't you? Yeah. But also, if you assimilate 
and you're picking up, you're losing the good things from your culture, it it's negatively affects your, your mission and your ministry. So what I found was I've become somebody who was obviously not middle class to the middle class church and obviously not working class to, to, to my peers. And I didn't yeah. think of anyone. I, I didn't sound posh. I just still sounded rough to the posh people. Yeah. <laughs> I sounded like a fake to to my friends. So how have you navigated not just fitting in with the middle class church, but staying true to to the people that you you live amongst and, and you minister to? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not a static position. I think it's something that fluctuates, and I think I do better sometimes at one side of that than the other side. Um, and I think I, I feel exactly kind of what you just described. I'm no longer working class enough for the working classes, but I'm not middle class enough for the middle classes. And it's <laughs> it's interesting. I, I've got a friend who feels that way, but he says it, he for him it makes him feel like he can bridge both sides, mm. whereas I'm like, for me, it makes me feel like I don't fit anywhere. But it's just interesting kind of... Um, I think my family keep me kind of rooted in my working classness. So my family are very working class. Um, you know, they're not Christians as well. So uh, they haven't tried to assimilate <laughs> with anyone. And I think so there's a lot kind of, I, you know, I just spend time with my mum and it brings me back to earth. Uh, I've also tried to make sure I've got friends from all walks of life. So I've got friends who live on estates. I've got friends who are very middle class and I've got one friend who would describe herself as upper class um and but and I've got some friends who are very wealthy even if they're not upper class so trying to trying to I just feel like life is so enriched when you spend time with different people anyway and so and it does remind you of your roots but I mean one of my friends from the estates she's like uh you're not like us anymore you know kind of and um we were joking about how um, I felt like I'd really arrived as a middle-class person in the first lockdown of the pandemic because I bought an avocado for the first time. And so I was like, I'm definitely, that's it now. You know, I've arrived. Although I missed the split second where it's perfectly ripe, so I'd never bought one again. Um, but my friend on the estate, she bought a fridge with a water dispenser on the front. Yeah. And I was like, that is totally middle-class if you've got a water dispenser. I don't care if you do live on an estate. So I think, you know, we have these jokes and we have this banter, but I think that it's it's really important, isn't it, to just be um, constantly kind of letting yourself be challenged. But also I think one of the things that's difficult is it's not just you between you and Jesus. There's also people around you yeah. who mm-hmm. might be wanting you to change mm-hmm. and wanting you to either stay closer to your roots or wanting you to become more like everyone around you. And then I've noticed I, I want people to change. so. I can put that uh, kind of, I can, in the name of discipleship, be trying to disciple someone to fit in with the majority rather than discipling someone just to be more and more like Jesus. So I think these things are constantly difficult to navigate and, and that is the hard work of sanctification, isn't it? But it doesn't always feel like hard work. You have seasons in your life, don't you, where you just see what God's doing and you see more clearly and you, you're trying to walk this line. But I do think, yeah, just trying to navigate it is really is really difficult a lot of the time. And and I just think being open to challenge, being open to the, the Holy Spirit's conviction, but also being open to people around you. I notice like people say stuff to me and it gets my back up. So I'm trying to make sure that my first question is what's going on inside me? Like what's why am I having this reaction? Um to be honest, counselling's helped me with that as well. Like having counselling for a period has really helped me to 
instead of just jumping to what's that person's problem or what's going on for them, I'm trying to start with what's going on inside me that I'm reacting that way. And I don't always get it right, like none of us do, but but that's my starting place more and more. So, yeah. Yeah, good advice. Good advice. And Yeah, similarly, counselling was, was a benefit to me. Uh, not, not almost, uh, it's not always effective. My reaction, it doesn't stop my reactions, but it helps me reflect on them <laughs> afterwards. Uh, yeah. But again, I think uh, just going back to saying why I found it quite refreshing hearing uh, your story within Invisible Desires, Divides was because coming from a, a female perspective, and I just wondered uh, if you think there might be any differences for females from a working class background who enter into the church. Is it easier? Is it harder? Is it is it just different? But yeah, I definitely think it is. It is different. I think. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons Paul and I wrote together is because I think the experience of a, I guess, particularly a white working class man and a white working class woman is is quite different. Um, a lot of that will just be in the actual like outworking of it. Some of the social stuff you're expected to kind of maybe engage in. Like I, I don't think I've ever like baked a cake and brought it to a church meeting. I definitely have never made a quiche, so I'm not even saved probably. Um, but you know, like some of the things that I think. But I, I don't know if that's just to do with class or to do with gender anyway, because I, I wonder if anyone's ever expected you to bring a quiche to a meeting and that won't be because you're a working class man that'll just be because you're male but I do think there are difficulties I think there's difficulties when it comes to leadership I think sometimes it can be harder for men because you and I are probably both quite blunt we've described ourselves uh, in other conversations haven't we as, as blunt uh, or honest or whatever <laughs> but sometimes the way that comes across from a guy can be more aggressive I mean this is, these are generalizations obviously but you know, it might be that when it comes, your bluntness might be perceived to be more intimidating. Uh, I'm really little; I'm only five foot one, so that could also be like a little height thing as well, you know. Um, but sometimes that bluntness comes with an edge, or it might be that people think I'm really catty. Uh, I've tried to use a more polite word than the one that was in my head then, um, because you know, when I'm when I'm blunt, so I think perceptions will be different. I think. Probably in terms of leadership, um, I think kind of my observation, and then this would be a huge generalisation, but would be that men who maybe need some of their rough edges being knocked off might still be seen as potential leaders, whereas I wonder if some of the women I've seen come through, maybe not so much. Um, but again, how much of that is class and how much of that is some of the denominations or church streams that we're in. I think sometimes it's really hard to untangle because there's so much intersectionality between these different things, isn't there? But but I definitely think as a working class woman, I I know that people have assumed I'm not that bright uh, because they've told me, like, and, and in some good, healthy, honest conversations, to be mm -hmm. honest, you know, I mean, some of the reason I wrote the book is because people who've made assumptions about me have been happy to later down further down the line tell me what they thought. And so I've been able to reflect on that and, and write about it. Um, sometimes those conversations are not helpful. Um, but, yeah. Uh, so, so I think, 
But again, I think that is an assumption that could be made of men as well. Paul and I, when we wrote, we definitely felt like our experiences were different, but with a lot of commonality. I think there were areas where he felt his differences to the middle-class men were, were particularly, like under the issue of authority and how he feels about authority and how different that was in church among other men, he particularly felt that. That wasn't so much of an issue for me. Um, I think attitudes towards community and how we do community together perhaps were stronger for me. But, yeah, so I, I don't think anything's as simple because also it's personality type as well. But I, it definitely is different. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want to say it's worse because I obviously don't know what it's like to be a white working class man, but it's definitely felt hard. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think for both the the stigmas attached to an an unfair like character choose based at working class women and working class men. I think some of the some of the places that I've worked in, the, the woman might get a raw deal because of, of negative stereotypes, uh, but then in others they'll be looked on more favourably than. The white working class man who's seen as like a Brexit voting ignorant racist, and you know, there's so much, there's so much that stigma that comes not particularly from the church, but in our society as a whole, especially with a lot of the divisions pre and 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 during and post COVID. Uh, I think that's actually had a negative effect as well upon uh, not just I wouldn't even say how middle class in the church perceive the working class but how the working class feel perceived by the middle class so i think that's another thing that i didn't actually mention to you earlier but often there's there's i think the media the way we're portrayed in the media people from a working class background can add to that layer of having a chip on your shoulder or the insecurity or an inferiority complex and 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 sometimes we can unfairly stereotype the middle class as working class people can't we yeah, definitely. I mean, I used to be a journalist, and so I, you know, the the media is, it, you sell more newspapers if you're a bit more polarising, I think, you know, and you're a bit more tribal. And so depending what, whether you read it online or wherever you get your news from, I think you're likely to be shaped in a way that doesn't really kind of foster this spirit of, we're all in it together, but it's very much either, you know, you're, you're ignorant and you don't understand how things should be done, or you're elitist and a snob and you're privileged and you've had so much you can't even begin to understand what normal life is like for most people. And and we're kind of pitted against each other, aren't we? Um, and I think that is, again, why I think the church should be this beautiful demonstration of the kingdom of god where actually whether you voted brexit or not whether you um drive a van or work in parliament you know you you should be able to interact with each other and not just interact but actually be friends with each other by being united in christ and i think some of the reasons we're not is because we shy away from the difficult conversations so even during the eu referendum I remember having a conversation with a guy in my church who was like, I just feel like I can't even talk to you guys about it because the minute I say 
I'm voting to leave the EU, everyone just piles onto me and thinks that I just don't know what I'm talking about and that I'm racist and that I'm stupid and whatever. And he and I just had a great conversation about, well, let's 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 try and understand both sides of the argument. And it was a dinner table, there's a whole bunch of us, and we, you know, and and actually, but I think it was the first time in like several weeks in the run up to the EU referendum that he felt anyone actually cared why he thought what he thought. Yeah. Um, once people knew what he thought, they didn't really want to know why. They didn't really want to understand the background. And I, but we all do that. We're all dismissive. The minute we hear something out of someone's mouth, we we put them in a category, and we sometimes it doesn't have to even be their opinion on something. Sometimes it's the way they speak, or the way they dress, or the way they present themselves, or the fact they go outside for a cigarette. Or do you know what I mean? We, we but we should have friends with people whose views make us wince. We should have friends who we'd be embarrassed to introduce to each other because we know that they'd upset each other. Because if we are followers of Jesus and Jesus died for all people, then then it kind of to me it's just logical, isn't it, that we should we should disagree with each other. We should have conflict. We should have things where I think I can't well, how on earth is, have you arrived at that view? But we should be able to have those conversations. And I think the problem is we don't have the conversations. We just write each other off. The disagreement's fine, it's just finding ways to talk about it that honour each other, that respect each other, that actually genuinely want to learn from each other. And I think that's the other thing. So often we don't want to genuinely learn from each other because we think our way's right. So if I'm already right, I don't really need to learn because I already know that I'm right. And but I think that exists on all sides. I think there's a there's a snobbery and there's a reverse snobbery. And you know, that's why we all need to be sanctified. Yeah, that's that's very true, very true. And again, hopefully, uh, this has been a positive conversation about how, uh, yeah, Jesus brings uh, different people together for his church, uh, different cultures, classes, ethnicities. And uh, yeah, so let, let's end on a high note. Over the time of, of first getting saved and, and through your ministry, what are some of the, the positives that you've seen in how the church is changing its attitude towards class? Yeah, well, I think a massive thing has been the church really mobilising across the UK in the last sort of 15 years to be reaching out to people who are struggling financially, which obviously isn't the same as being working class. But I think that connection to trying to tackle poverty has meant that we've got a lot of people coming through our doors for um, help and support and encouragement even if they're not coming to our like Sunday meetings or more traditional church settings, which I think is really good because it means we're automatically having people from all walks of life coming together in different settings. And I think the challenge then is what we do with that. But the fact is that is a good thing. And then I think what I'm seeing in the last couple of years really um, is that there seems to be a real appetite to discuss why are our churches kind of either majority middle class or um, working class on an estate somewhere or, you know, separate, separated by like along uh, race and ethnic lines or whatever. And it seems there's a real part to build churches that are diverse in and of themselves rather than just saying, well, the church in the UK is diverse across the board, but we never talk to people who are different to us. And so I love the fact that it feels like there's an appetite amongst church leaders. So at Jubilee Plus, we're getting loads of church leaders asking us about this. I mean, even the fact that they're the the Invisible Divides book 
got published is because there was a recognition that it feels a time when people want to read about this stuff and want to learn about this. And the response to the book has just been massively encouraging in terms of people actually wanting to do things differently and wanting to cross those divides and wanting to learn. And I feel like there's a real posture of humility um, on all sides of actually maybe I've got stuff wrong about you. Maybe, maybe we've judged each other too harshly. Maybe actually our hearts are similar. We just have expressed ourselves poorly or, or whatever. And so for me, the real encouragement is there just seems to be a genuine desire to have churches that, that actually point people to Jesus because of how we love each other in our difference, in our diversity. And, and I'm seeing that coming from church leaders is really just, it feels like almost like a new day at the moment, a new season, which is great. Yeah, exciting, exciting. And again, all, all, almost ending on a positive. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think still needs to be done? For me, I mentioned uh, about there's a number of reasons why uh, working class Christians uh, are, are missing from our pews and from from the pulpits and church leaderships. And one of them I said was structural. I think there's structural reasons that uh, make it difficult. And I think uh, obviously social reasons impact that, the lack of churches being in council estates and the lack of council estate people being reached. But I also said that there was some self-inflicted problems, whether that be uh, addictions or temptations or apathy or lack of ambition uh, that come from some people from a similar background to me. And uh, I, when I mentioned that, people were horrified at the thought that working class people might have a responsibility themselves for um, not being visible within the church. So I just wondered what what your thought is on uh, the attitude of the church and the expectations that the church puts on working class people. Do they see them as just people who are needed to be reached or do they see them as people who are going to be our future leaders? Yeah, I think we do often have to deal with our like kind of messiah complex a little bit, don't we? In terms of we often a lot of us again across the classes would want to kind of um, help each other. We we would see ourselves in that saviour role. Let me rescue you. Let me help you. You're in need, and I think that is pretty unhelpful most of the time. I think we do much better when we talk about in terms of partnership and. I love the fact that, you know, church is family, isn't it? So actually in a family, sometimes you might need me to help you, but actually other times I might need you to help me. And it's not one way, it's two way. And I think so often we either cast ourselves in the role of, well, I'm the person helping or I'm the person being helped. And actually trying to make those that, that dynamic a lot more fluid and a lot more Actually, you can be helping someone and being helped at the same time. And you certainly can be over the course of any given year in both roles. And so I think just kind of trying to make that a case. It's one of the reasons I actually like the word food bank. I like the bank part of it because, you know, in a bank, you put in an investment when you've got something to invest. But when you're in need, you take out. And I think we've got all sorts of problems with expectations in that we've got middle class people who won't ask for help because they feel like oh, someone like me shouldn't need this help and we all need to help each other actually do a lot more to kind of come against those you know kind of those barriers we put up ourselves and on other people and definitely be trying to um 
bring down all those divides and actually, yeah, help not not just always be on one side of the equation. And also, I think you're right, raise our expectations of what we what we want from people. But raise our expectations in that, like, expect the best from people and expect more from people, but don't expect them to necessarily do it the way you do it or look the way you look when you do it. Uh, again, kind of hospitality is a really obvious and easy example. Let's help us all to grow in our hospitality, but let's not expect it to look the same across the board. Let's all grow in our generosity. But it, again, it doesn't have to look the same for every single person. So I think we we raise our game across the board to become more and more like Jesus, but we don't have to expect people to end up looking like us. If that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, and, and what a wonderful place to end, ending on looking like Jesus and reminding us that, yeah, that's what it's about, isn't it? We want a, a group of people who reflect Jesus, not our social class or our our preferences. Oh, that has been absolutely awesome chatting with you. Uh, I, I didn't say half of what I wanted to say. I was getting too excited listening to some of your answers. But, uh, yeah, I do appreciate you spending time with us. I know you're very busy. I'll put a link to where you can purchase your books, but also to the Jubilee Plus website. And uh, I'd just like to thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the In Context podcast. Thanks for having me. Cheers, thank you.